I should say happy Father's Day to you. Um, you know where Father's Day began? Father's Day actually began with a mother. Her name was Sonora Dodd. Sonora Dodd in 1910 in Spokane, Washington. It had just been a few years since Mother's Day had been created. And she was looking around. She actually was not raised with a mother. Her mother died in childbirth. And she thought, <coughs> we need to honor our fathers. This, this father had raised her up. And so she created this, this Father's Day. And from that point forward, for decades, we, we honor and celebrate our, our dads on this Sunday. And um, I, I want to particularly pay a note to you. If you are a dad in the, in the congregation who has brought your children to church this morning, good on you. And may the Lord bless and keep you and your family for, for, for taking that extra step. You know, we, um, we encourage even those who are out, in the, the, out and about with their, with their kids and their families today, even though they, they aren't here in our, our worship, we know that God is blessing and doing good work in their families as well. Because here's the challenge, folks. Here's the challenge with dads. Um, I read an article just this morning of all the countries, all the nations in the world, we have the most fatherless homes of any country in the world. Think about that. The most fatherless homes. And so um, as one dad to another, I say, keep fighting the good fight. Uh, it is worth it. If you, if you know of a child who is fatherless, who, who needs a father figure in their lives, bring them on. Come on, go, go fishing, bring them with you. Uh, we've got multiple organizations in town, including fathers in the faith, or fathers in the field to, to do that. But dads, you matter. You matter in this place. You matter in your kids' lives. And I'll speak to you older men as well. You know, I'm pushing 40. And um, my father is, is not retired. He may be retiring from work this year, but he will not retire as my dad. I'm so grateful for him and for the, uh, the counsel and love that he gives me. Uh, so don't lose sight of that as well, that your, your sons and daughters need you. Uh, you do not retire from that. So this morning, speaking of, uh, speaking of Father's Day, though, we're, we're going to talk about this, this key issue that sometimes dads have. Uh, Brian alluded to it already, and that is the, the issue of patience. Dads, anybody lost your patience with your kids recently? Maybe like this morning? Now a few like quiet hands in the air. Uh, but this morning, we're going to turn to James. We're coming to the end of this, this book, and James gives us a really, I think, this, this wise counsel, this good word. On, uh, on what it means to be patient and to wait. So let's, let's listen to God's word. We're going to read chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, or 7 through 11. 7 through 11. Let's hear now uh, the word of the Lord for us. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it? until it receives the early and late rains, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let me just ask you, when was the last time you had to truly wait for something? And I don't mean like wait in like the trivial sense of the word, like waiting on traffic or waiting on dinner. I mean, when was the last time you truly had to stop and be still and wait 
on the Lord. When I was growing up, my, my favorite part of the day, absolute favorite part of the day was when dad got home. And the summers, I knew as soon as those work shoes came off, it was baseball or soccer with pops in the backyard. If we were lucky, he'd light up the charcoal grill and my brothers and, and he and I would get after it. But like any three-year-old, right, I had no sense of time, three, four, five years old. And I remember trying to figure out when it was that dad was coming home. I'd have a few signals that I'd, I'd wait for. First, the first signal was always that my mom would boot all of us boys out of the kitchen and it was now off limits, right? And we knew that meant we were getting closer. But about the time that, uh, that the smell from whatever my mom was cooking began to fill the house, I knew dad's homecoming was imminent. We would sit with our, our dog at the front door staring out the window. I had a little bit of ADHD, so sometimes I'd bounce to the bedroom and look out that window. But I have to admit, even as a child... I was much better waiting then than I am now. You know, as adults, we don't live in a, a world that really allows for patience and waiting. Before we jump into this lesson, I, I really want us to grasp the, the context, the environment by which we live. Just think about this with me. 25 years ago, let's just take this as an example. If you wanted to watch a movie at your house Friday night 25 years ago, what did you have to do? Do you remember that? My family would start like Monday or Tuesday, you'd call in and you'd rent yourself a VHS player. Remember those things, how bulky those were? And you'd go to the local Blockbuster and you'd check that out, but it would spend, you'd spend more than 30, 45 minutes to an hour not only getting the, the VHS, but then also looking for the movie because the movie that you all agreed upon would be checked out. Remember that, all those lines, yep. You think, well, we gotta decide another one. So you'd finally get the machine in your car, you'd get it home, you'd plug it in, you'd get the VHS in, and then what would happen? Someone was not kind and they did not rewind. So now you watch the whole thing in backwards. And to some of us, I know that's a, that's a completely foreign picture. To the rest of us, that is a memory that seems lifetimes ago, doesn't it? Because today, everything is instant. You can watch whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want, however you want. It's all on demand. It's just one example, but think about how that changes us. You know, we live in a climate of instant gratification. If I'm missing my girls during the day, I don't have to go home. They don't have to wonder when I'm coming home. All I got to do is FaceTime them. It's a glorious age that we're living in, and yet this instantaneous satisfaction gives us no reference point at all for what it means to patiently wait. And I think that reality makes this lesson from James one of the most difficult teachings of our day because if you heed the counsel of God's word this morning, by default, by default, you have chosen a way that is completely misaligned with the world around you. Because this lesson from James is a lesson about what it is to wait. Look at this in verse eight. He says, remember the coming of the Lord is at hand. Dinner's on the stove. The aroma's in the air. Jesus is coming again. Remember, for this early church, Christ has died. Christ has risen. And now James wants this, this assembly to understand their task now is to wait. But here's the challenge with that. You know, much like being three years old and trying to figure out when dad was coming home, Jesus said, no one will know the day or the hour. Scriptures tell us he's coming like a thief in the night. He's coming like the twinkling of an eye. At an hour, no one will see coming. That's the timeline we have to work from. 
In fact, look at this in, in Matthew's gospel, chapter 24. He says, as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man like that. And remember, this is the earliest letter written in the New Testament. James is writing to this infant community in faith, and they all believe Jesus' return is imminent, but he tells them, your goal now is to wait patiently on the second coming of Christ. The Greek word that James uses here is parousia. It means arrival. It's think like a dignitary coming into town. The coming of the Lord is near. The, the parousia is near. He's on his way. Except there's one problem, right? We don't know how, as God's people, to wait. And the longer that we wait, the more that gap becomes. Recently in the Boston Globe, um, there was an article written about what they called the perpetual impatience of our day. The perpetual impatience of our day. And in this article, they talked about these social scientists who had studied millions upon millions of click rates online. And they found that an average website has two seconds to load before the mover or before the user moves on. A website has two seconds to capture your attention before you are already on to the next page. See, and this is the hardship, right? On the one hand, James says the coming of the Lord is approaching. It's near. Wait for it. Expect it. Pray on it. Hope for it. And yet on the other hand, we read this passage and in a world of that kind of immediacy, we're still trying to figure out how we do that. It's an age-old challenge of the bride of Christ. Look at Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. Look at what's happened here. It says, let us not, let's consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some have done, but encouraging one another. Why? All the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, as followers of Jesus, we know the day is coming, right? This is a biblical fact. Jesus promised he was coming back for his people which means even today, we, we still claim those words of James, right? The, the coming of the Lord is around the corner. And yet 2 Peter 3.8 qualifies this a little bit. It says, but do not look, overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. God does not play on our timeline. How do we reconcile that? See, I think so often is the church, here's the simple fact, we don't. We don't. We just put this second coming up on the shelf, the, the parousia, the return of Christ that James speaks of. We, we make it some theological concept for seminary circles, and we just, well, well, it'll come. We'll forget about it. And by and large, right, we are not a patient waiting people. And yet I think we all wait for something. Even right now, think about it. What are you waiting for? A wrong to be made right in your life? Maybe it's an answer to prayer Waiting for a change in the uh, financial situation of your household? Anyone? Just me? <laughs> Waiting for a resolution to some conflict? I could keep going, but don't miss this. James is calling the church to put into practice the spiritual discipline of waiting. And specifically, he's calling on God's people to wait again on the Lord. This morning, I want to show you how this, this exhortation, this teaching is much more than just staring at the clock. It's, for James, this concept is an active 
concept. And I want to show you three ways that we can do this waiting thing well. The first imperative, the first action is, is super obvious. In fact, it's so obvious, James says it twice, and it's this. You're going to be like, duh. He says, in your hardship, be patient. Look at this in, in verse eight or verse seven. He says, in your hardship, be patient. Young father was in a local Walmart pushing his son in a grocery cart and the little boy was, was having a really rough day. He refused to buckle himself in. He wanted out of the grocery cart. He was screaming and yelling bloody murder. He, he, uh, he was full on temper tantrum. But his dad was surprisingly calm. Shoppers could hear him with this stern but calm voice speaking to his son as he was screaming. He said, Donald, take it easy. Donald, you need to calm down. Donald, watch your words. Donald, you can do this. Be cool. A grandmother passing down the aisle, she was just amazed at how this dad had kept his wits about him. She said, sir, you know just the right thing to say to an upset child. She said, Donald, you need to listen to your dad. The father blushed, got red in the face. He said, ma'am, you've got this all wrong. His name's Henry. I'm Donald. <laughs> it's as good as the dad jokes are getting today, so. No, patience is not something that comes easy though, right? Look at, look at what James writes in verse seven. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. He says, that's your example. As a farmer sows his seed and waits for God to bring his provision, so you are now called to sow your life and wait for Jesus' return. In first century Palestine, your entire livelihood was based on those two rains. Spring and autumn. There's no farmer's insurance. If it didn't rain, you were done. Just imagine the waiting and patience that must have been like. Look at this in Deuteronomy eleven fourteen. The Bible speaks to it. It says, the Lord will give you rain for your land in its season, early and late, that you may gather your grain and your wine and your oil. See, we wait, right? And no one knows what it is to be patient like one who lives off the land. They have no choice but to wait. You plant, you pray, and now you patiently hope on the Lord. Galatians 5 tells us when you see patience, when you see that word at work in your life, patience is the fruit of the Spirit. It means to endure to the very end, to trust in God even when the road ahead looks like nothing you thought it would, to rest in Him even when the, the anxious waiting seems unbearable. Look at this in verse 10. James says, just look at the prophets. If you want an example, let's look to the ones who spoke the name of the Lord even in their trials. And we could pick all sorts of, of prophets for this one, right? But the prophet that comes to mind, at least for me, when I think of James speaking this, and that word patience is Jeremiah. He was the weeping prophet. Remember Jeremiah 29, 11? Anybody memorize that one growing up? Jeremiah 29, 11. Maybe it's somewhere in your house or bookmarked in your Bibles. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare, for to prosper you and to not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And we love this passage. This is probably one of the top 10 of the Christian faith. We got it all over, uh, somewhere in, in the midst of our, our Christian walk. But hear this, hear me out. No one quotes the one right before it. Look at this in verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my promise. 
That means at the time that this was written, right, Jeremiah is prophesying during this, this what's called the Babylonian exile. And he's speaking to a people who in their rebellion have been handed to the enemy and an entire generation is exiled. And in the midst of all this suffering and hardship, the, the Lord tells his people, trust in my promises. I'm gonna give you a hope and a future. Except for verse 10 tells us it'll be 70 years. Imagine that kind of waiting. That means some would never experience it. James says the coming of the Lord is at hand. And just as the prophets were long suffering and their patience and their waiting, so we too are called to wait on the Lord. You know, this word patience, as I said, it's not a passive word. It's not a sit back and stare at the clock kind of word. It's, it's an action. And James gives us more of a picture of what that looks like. This is the second point. He says, it looks like establishing your heart. To be patient, he says, is to establish your heart. Look at this in verse eight. You also be patient. You might, your version might say, strengthen your heart. That word establish or, or strengthen in the Greek, it means to build yourself up with food. The picture is like a, a, a big feast before you go out in battle. And James is using that image to tell the flock, you need to strengthen your spiritual life. As food nourishes the body, so you need to fortify your heart for the trials ahead. You know, I find in my own life that when I've, I've had a rough season or when there's an answer that I'm waiting for from the Lord, when I find those moments of impatience, that's when I'm most vulnerable to stumble. How about you? You know, it's in that place of discontentment that I often do or say something that I go, why did I do that? As a colleague of mine shared this week, said, if you look to the scriptures, you will find that waiting and weariness go hand in hand, don't they? Waiting has this way of wearing us down and in this letter, James has spent much time talking to the rich of this church. Now he's talking to the poor, to those who are oppressed. And he says, you need to not worry about those who are oppressing you. He says, establish your hearts instead. The judge is coming. Don't worry about judging. Let Jesus be the one to sort this out. You're, you're clinging too tight here. Establish your hearts. I'm reminded of the time in 2 Chronicles 20 where this king, King Jehoshaphat, was encircled on all sides. Enemies in every direction. He had the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Mayanites all surrounding him, encircling him in battle. And the scripture tells us he was mortified, just terrified for him and for all of Judah. And so they, they gather up in this, this assembly of worship, and he falls to his knees in prayer, just struggling with this anxiety. But in this singular moment as he's praying, one of the Levites receives a word from the Lord. Look at what he says to Jehoshaphat. Verse 15. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at this great horde for the battle is not yours. It's God's. He goes on verse 17. He says, stand firm then. Strengthen yourself, strengthen your heart. Hold your position for the salvation of the Lord is coming. See, I think part of being patient <clears throat> means that when everything is against you, even when the answers don't add up, you remember again who it is that's in control of your life. And just as food strengthens our bodies, James wants us to, to know that God's word strengthens and reestablishes our hearts. It is the anchor in the storm. And James tells this church, he says, when you're struggling to wait, when you find your patience running on empty, you need to fortify your heart again with the promises of scripture. See, because 
Jesus gave us this really endearing term. He called us sheep, which means we wander, we forget, we stray. And instead of ruminating on God's promises, we begin listening to the loud voice of self-talk that goes on instead. Which brings me to my, my last point this morning. James says, be patient. He says, take heart. And thirdly, he says, do not grumble. It would be just like James to bring up our words, wouldn't it? Exodus 2.23, God's people are entrenched in slavery in Egypt and we're, we're told they grumbled, same kind of word. They groaned in their slavery. They were complaining and whining in their oppression. And this word grumble, it, it often comes when those times where, where, where we feel this downtroddenness, this, this burden in our lives, right? We were overwhelmed at the situation before us. And yet the words we speak, the, the words that we tell ourselves and tell others, they have great power over us. And every day we're fighting this battle, right? Between grumbling of complaint or trusting in God's promises. Between the ha glass half empty or the glass half full. Jeff Mannion in, in the land between this book that he wrote, he does this really good job of explaining this. Um, he personifies our complaining as a person who's interrupted our lives. And he talks about this grumbling person, this complaining one, how they're rarely invited in. They typically let themselves through the front door. You know, most of the time our grumbling shows up unannounced in the house. Somebody else is grumbling to us or it's popped into our brains and it sort of kicks this door open with this false sense of entitlement. And it becomes this tenant that won't leave. Look at what he writes. He says, so you return home from yet another frustrating day to, to discover that this complaint has moved into your guest room. It's unpacked its luggage, started a load of laundry, and it's rooting now through your fridge. Even as you seek to dislodge it, as you move its bags to the curb and change the locks, it crawls back through the guest room window because complaint resists eviction. See, and before you know it, our, our complaining has become so familiar, it's like this toxic friendship. And the danger with this is that eventually those complaints begin to take root in us and they begin to flourish in all the wrong ways. Because the more we grumble, the louder the voices in our heads get. And the louder the voices in our heads, the less we're listening to the promises that Jesus made for us. And before you know it, the endurance hits a wall. Because soon all we hear are the lies we talked ourselves into. I was scrubbing out one of my cast iron skillets this week, prepping for camping. And... I have to admit, last summer I did a poor job of taking care of it. There's some water and moisture that got in. And as I'm scrubbing this thing, I'm thinking about God's word this morning and thinking about what it, what it means to us. And you know, it's amazing how that little bit of water can rust a whole pan. So it is with our grumbling and our waiting on the Lord, right? We should be lifting his name on high, but when we grumble, our lives begin to erode. James says, just look at Job. Now this should be, this is awkward, right? Because if you know the story of Job, Job was a little bit of a grumbler, right? He, he wasn't afraid to bring his complaints to the Lord. And yet here's Job's example. His friends and his wife told him, look, Job, just curse God and die. Get it over with. Curse the name of the Lord. And he wouldn't do it. Because when we allow those kinds of complaints in our minds, into our homes, into our families, into the part of our vernacular, you can guarantee a worn down spirit. James says the coming of the Lord is at hand. Be patient, fortify your hearts, 
be careful with your words because here's the end game. Look at this in verse 11. He says, those who remain steadfast are blessed. Here's the hard fact of life. God's best work happens in the hardship of our lives. Israel's transformation did not occur in the promised land. Their transformation occurred in the desert, right? In the longings of their soul. And the reality is for Christ's followers, we live a waiting game. All of us wait for his return. We anticipate his coming in. But in your waiting, James wants us to understand God is doing something. And we cannot learn the lessons that God has for us when all we hear is the grumbling of our own mind. So I'll leave you with a question this morning. It's not original at, at all. If Jesus came back right now, how would he find you in your waiting? The God we worship, make no mistake about this. The God we worship keeps his promises. That means if Jesus said he's coming back, we can trust in that and we should live our lives wrapped around that truth. I want to close our time in, uh, with a prayer this morning. I want to start with Psalm 27. I'm just going to read the end of it, but I invite you to read the whole thing this week as it's a psalm all about waiting and waiting on the Lord. Pray with me, will you? Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. God, we read those words, we read that psalm, and we, we must confess that we are not great at waiting. Lord, often we, we look to generations past and we think about our own lives and the world around us, and sometimes we lose sight of the promise that you gave us that one day is coming, that a glorious day is near. And so, Lord, let us not be caught wayward be caught off guard, off, off kilter. But God, may, may you help us to be patient, to establish our hearts and to watch our words as we sing praises in that promise. God, make us a patient, hopeful, expectant, waiting people. Show us what that looks like this week, Lord. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.